Welcome to Genius Leadership Podcast, where we discuss how to overcome everything as a leader. I'm your host, Anna Liebel, a mind shifter, helping male leaders in tech get out of the firefighting mode, become the proactive leaders they want to be, and enjoy the ride as they go. Join me every week for honest, insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders. We discuss their roller coaster ride of leading from their zone of genius and when they don't. If you find this show valuable, please subscribe and share it so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. Now, let's get into the episode. Maria, welcome back to the Genius Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Anna. How has this period been? It's almost three weeks or let's say two and a half weeks since we recorded last. How has it been for you with the project? It's been really interesting. A lot of research, uh, digging deeper into scholarly works, uh, published articles, peer-reviewed from people around the world, um, and also interviewing people from around the world, or at least Europe, let's say Mm -hmm. the Western world kind of thing. Um, Haven't kind of run into any any people from the other side of the globe so far. But yeah, a lot of of new information, both uh, conversationally and written. So uh, kind of compiling it all together was... I don't say it was a challenge. It was mostly trying to find the commonalities or topics that came up, you know, over again or ideas, concepts, that kind of thing for uh, kind of uh, one of the things that I've been doing, which is wrapping up the sprint with kind of a review or written review. So mm-hmm. that was kind of my goal was to try to find the commonalities in our conversations and kind of tie things together a little bit more for the sprint. So, yeah. Your sprint review is like six pages, <laughs> very extensive. Well, that's for the addendum and the bibliography and everything. So we don't count those. So, but you know, it's, it's got some words. There's some, there's some words, you know, that's there's what I. Quite some work put into that mm-hmm. and quite a lot of thought. So I really appreciate that in, in, in your work. Yeah. It's been an intense uh, sprint or one and a half. And um, so many, as you said, conversations and reading and trying to, whoops trying to connect the dots, dots for what we're finding, trying to figure out what are the red threads and what can we do with our project to fill the gaps that, that we're finding. So that process is still ongoing. And I would like to focus this episode on to talk about what gaps we see, what thoughts we have been going through and the direction that this project seems to be taking. Uh, for now, we'll see maybe the next <laughs> recording. It is, it is kind of mutating, which is beautiful. I mean, that's how, you know, isn't that what usually happens when you start pulling at a thread, you know, and either things unravel or you discover a whole world of potential, you know, when you follow the thread. So it's, yeah. yeah. And that's why I wanted to, to have this recorded on a podcast. And I said it in the first episode that we have no clue where it ends mm-hmm. and what becomes the result of this project. We, we have free hands. So the RAN is the organization that um, sponsors uh, your work here does not really have a lot of framework for us or deliverables. It's up to us what we what we make this project to be in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. this freedom is uh, awesome. And it's interesting to have these milestones recorded in between our thoughts in, while in process, uh, because we tend to forget it in the end. So... One of the things we have discussed with a lot of people is the data. So what are the numbers when we talk about burnout, when we talk about failure of startups and so on and so forth? People want data. And uh, we, we just discussed before we started recording how much of a project it is to actually collect some reliable representative data. So I just 
think I, I want to emphasize that, that we are aware of the need for that, but I don't think this will be part of the deliverables of the project for us to actually provide some specific data because we don't have the funds and the resources for that to really make some valuable in, or create the data set that will be valuable with the insights that actually will help the industry. So my point on that is that we will focus more on the qualitative insights and mm. in, uh, data or insights collection, let's say, instead of trying to get some measurements and KPIs from Statistics Bureau here or all the entrepreneurs of Iceland. That's my thoughts. What, what would be your thoughts on, on the data port? I feel like I did bump up, obviously, uh, reliable statistical data. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the research papers, specifically, there was uh, one by a gentleman from Bivrist, which is uh, one of our universities that's mostly focused on business. And he was comparing basically entrepreneurs in Iceland and their kind of personality traits, like in a big five, where do they fit into the big five scale? Is there a specific personality type that seeks out entrepreneurship? And is it any, his, his, his thesis statement, his hypothesis was basically there is no difference between Icelanders and, you know, off, off Islanders, as I, you know, as I put it. And that was proven to be correct, uh, that there, he, there was no statistical data that he could find. Uh, and also based on interviews with locals and research that he'd done abroad to show that there's any huge difference in the classic character traits of an Icelandic entrepreneur and went abroad. So the reason I bring that up is because there is statistical data. There is, you know, the charts and graphs and all this kind of stuff and all the numbers. And it is valuable to get, use that to put something into motion. Because as, like you said, a number of our interviewees or people that we chatted with mentioned, especially the men, they're like, there's got to be the data behind it. There's got to be the numbers. Or I guess they're, what they were trying to say was like, or the men aren't going to follow. They're not just going to follow some woo woo. Oh, you should feel better. You know, drink more tea. You know, they want to see the numbers. And, but I think more often than not, this number one out of 10 startups failed has come up both with the international people that we've interviewed and the Icelanders. So I feel like in the Icelandic community, you know, one in 10 is the same. There's nothing to dispute that that seems to be the global norm. Mm-hmm. It's this kind of 10% success rate. So I think following on that trend, one of the things I wrote about, um, well, I, we'll stop there because that's one of the things I think that going from a qualitative approach is valuable. Having data to back up any massive claims is also important. And I have been, you know, making sure that I'm doing proper research mm-hmm. on these sprint write-ups and our final report for Rannis will also be a formal, you know, scientific report or, you know, social sciences kind of report. So we're going down that path. This isn't just, you know, our opinion. There's mm-hmm. obviously, we need to have the stuff to back it up. And that's part of the process from my end, but I don't know that those conversations need to be had right now with the people that we're speaking with. So that's kind of my opinion on that. Yeah, I think it's a valuable point that, what I'm trying to say is that we don't collect our data or build some new data, but I agree with you that we need to make the best of use of the data that is already available and maybe connect the dots or look at it from the perspective that hasn't been looked at uh, and so on and so forth. And that's what we're doing yeah. uh, quite diligently. I mean, that's a whole nother, there's a whole nother years long project to go out and actually, I mean, that's a whole like master's thesis, you know, kind yeah. of thing in, in psychology or in business or whatever to go out and, you know, do a huge proper research on, you know, as many entrepreneurs as possible. And I guess that that was part of our original goal to do, 
you know, I don't know that it's gone either, this goal of, of creating a questionnaire and presenting it. So that's not off the table. I think that might be something that we work on next print or, you know, even after that, when we've figured out more what we're, what we want to ask. Mm-hmm. But I mean, doing some like seriously quantitative, you know, analysis, that's not, that's not our, we don't have the scope for it here mm-hmm. at this point. So this is starting phase. And, and I think if somebody wanted to run with this farther, then that would, this could be a good, you know, kind of a diving platform mm-hmm. to go deeper into the, the subject. So, okay. Another point that comes out uh, up a lot is how would I say, whom do we need to help or do we really need to help? And I get to think about this saying that the rescue of the drowner, drowning person is the business of the drowning person. Uh, I know I'm translating from Ukrainian, so I don't know what, <laughs> what the saying in English would be for that, but it's really about like, okay, uh, you need to help yourself. Um, and, and the others can throw you the, the ring the rescuing, but it's up to you to grab it or not. Interesting. Yeah. And that's what I've been coming back to in my head again and again in the conversations we had recently with also my own services that I provide, because I've been trying to aim at early stage entrepreneurs. And I started asking myself the question from the beginning of this project, do they really need my help? Uh, Or rather they might need it, but they don't understand it. So would they value it what they wanted <laughs> because I feel like with, with these conversations we've been having, I just had this image of myself running to a random person on the street and saying, Hey, you've got back problems. Let me fix you and starting to, <laughs> to tweak them. And the person would be like, who the fuck are you? Why are you touching me? I didn't give you right. any permission. <laughs> and that's what I realized that I've been trying to do with people who don't understand that they have a back problem. Or maybe I just don't know about the anatomy and actually that's their normal and that's the balanced way for them to be. So that's the transition that is going on for myself right now to understand, can I offer some value for real to the early stage entrepreneurs or do I need to focus solely on people who are more mature? Oh, that's where most of my clients have been so far. People who have been doing it long enough and see that what took them there won't take them further. So I think this is an interesting point as well to discuss. Do we really need to create some help, support and some community or whatever for those early stage entrepreneurs or is it something else? And I think that transitions into what we discussed quite a lot about the education. Mm-hmm. So people who go through formal education, business focus, whether it's high school, college, university level, whatever it is, or it is the startup accelerators, can we somehow embed the conversations about the well-being and mental health into that without pushing, without trying to fix the back of the stranger on the street, but just saying like, hey, those are the things to pay attention to when you think about your posture. And actually, hey, do you know that your posture affects how you breathe, how your brain functions because of the oxygen coming to your brain or not, and and so on and so forth. So I think this is what, interestingly enough, or a bit unexpectedly for me, came up a lot in our conversations, Mm -hmm. that we tend to go more and more into education and just thinking whether our solution could be raising awareness and giving the vocabulary and the frameworks early on. Yeah, it has actually come up quite a bit and in a lot of different angles as well. You know, the, uh, well, the, you know, the, I think the education angle personally, because I have been an educator and I understand how you can, you know, for, for teenagers and that kind of thing, how you can is almost like street hypnosis. Have you ever heard of street hypnosis? 
No. Uh, oh. uh, Neuro-linguistic programming, yeah. NLP, yeah. which is different from natural language processing, the other NLP. But in a weird way, those two NLPs kind of combined together. One being how, you know, advertisers use language structure to sell their product or their, or their service or whatever. Uh, street hypnosis is the street name for it. Uh, there's a lot of different things you can do with street hypnosis. Like if you, uh, to kind of put the, the mind into a, a split state for like a microsecond. Like if you say like, Oh my God, that's so cool that it's that hot. Hmm. Okay. Then you get like the cool and the hot. So you have opposites, uh, being spoken in the same sentence and the brain has to take a, a sh- like a, a boop, little second to reconcile the opposites. That's one tiny little thing that street hypnotist, hypnotist or kind of a hypnotist, hypnotist does. Uh, and street hypnosis is not where you're going in and going like, you know, with the pendulum or whatever. And, you know, uh, but it's a way to actually manipulate people, uh, for good or evil kind of thing. But there's, I started kind of using that with my students, uh, in a positive way, uh, when I was teaching them, when I learned about this and it's, you know, trying to reach, you know, your average 16, 17, 18 year old. And there's just small techniques. Um, nothing that's any like, like maybe speaking at a very, very, very low, you know, kind of tone for X amount of time. They're going like, you know, well, all of a sudden I'm waking them up. And in the meantime, I've been embedding them in this kind of sleepy state with what I'm trying to tell them. The test is going to be on Tuesday. You need to study this and this. And they're zoning out. And then I go like, well, and I snap them out of it. <gasps> anyway, so that's just a little sidebar there. But there's a lot of different ways to embed this kind of culture of like, you know, uh, you know, work hard, but rest well kind of thing. Uh, from the get-go, uh, we have, a, I'll put a little footnote on that because you brought up some ideas, some things that might kind of go awry with that, with that concept. But I think embedding it into, uh, the school culture, the same way, um, bullying was embedded into school culture as in like what it, you know, giving this, uh, young students, we've mentioned this quite a few times, uh, over the last two weeks with interviewees, but giving children, grade school children here in Iceland, the vocabulary to talk about bullying, like, you know, who are the four individuals usually or four or five individuals involved in a bullying situation. And now that they have this, they're able to, it just becomes part of their natural existence. And this kind of wellness culture, you don't have to work five jobs. You don't have to stay awake for 18, 19 hours to get all your studying done. You don't need to like go out there and be this entrepreneur, just like drive, drive, drive until you're ill can be part of the lexicon uh, for future generations Mm -hmm. if and when we allow it to be. So Mm -hmm. I think the education thing is absolutely important. Mm -hmm. Then again, if you have someone who wants to be a classical pianist or a ballet dancer, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, performing at the Met or who wants to be a world-class athlete or whatever, whatever passion-driven you know, spirit takes over a person, whether it's be to start a business to change the world or to start a business to become rich <laughs> or to, you know, be a world-class gymnast. You can't tell someone when they're 12 or 10 who starts thinking, I want to be next Simone Biles. I want to be a world-class gymnast. Okay. I want to be her. And you can't say, you know, girl, forget about it. Cause at some point you're going to break your ankle and it's going to be done. So you might as well not even try. Okay. And there maybe are, there are those people that do that, but how ineffectual is that? How sad is that? Right. But what the athlete does get though is proper training along the path. So they have, they're coached and along the, you know, the coaching along the way is to have you, your electric, I mean, you, your husband's a triathlete. So you know this better than I do, but like what a, you know, hardcore athlete needs. 
But I mean, are you getting your electrolytes? Are you getting your vitamins? Are you getting your rest? Are you doing your stretches? Are you doing your meditations, your visualizations, all this kind of stuff? And if there isn't that, I mean, leg days today, and then two days later, you know, you're going to do, you know, whatever the, the training, but it's not like running every single day, you know, for like until you're at your breaking point without pauses in between that, that metaphor came up a lot in our conversations, mm-hmm. the athlete, and also this article that was in financial times, I guess the uh, founders taboo, they were interviewed there. That whole metaphor came up treating the entrepreneur or the founder as an athlete mm-hmm. who is dedicated and is not going to stop until they at least try to reach their maximum goal. Mm-hmm. So coaching along the way. And I, yeah, so I'm going to stop there because I was kind of, I think, hit two or three different points that you mentioned. The comparison or the analogy of the sports and elite coaching comes up a lot when, when I listen to founders well-being topic or conversations. What I'm thinking about right now when I listen to you, and that was the first time I actually approached this topic from the, from this angle is who is usually paying for all that support system for the pro athlete? It's not the pro athlete himself or herself putting in the money to pay from their own pocket to create that whole support system. They're looking for sponsors usually because they know that they cannot afford all of that, mm-hmm. but they cannot afford to not have all that support system because they will just stay at the mediocre level. Right. Forever. At the point, you know, do you have the proper running shoes to be able to complete, compete on, you know, national track team level? I mean, mm-hmm. if you go to university and you get basically a scholarship, you go to university for, you know, the arts or the sports or whatever your thing is, you know, or just whatever your thing is and, and you get a scholarship, that's a form of sponsorship mm-hmm. that young people can strive to achieve. But that's not the case for, I think I see where you're going with it. That's not the case for entrepreneurs. No. Uh, and that's the thing. When I talk to investors, for example, they're like, oh yeah, I, I cannot afford to push my founder to go for a vacation for two weeks because I need them to perform. I need them to push. I need them to get me the ROI because I'm responsible in front of my LPs who put the money into my fund. So I think this is the mindset that has to happen in the whole industry. It's not the responsibility of the founder. Founder has already taken so much responsibility on themselves to try to fucking build this business. Just take that off their plate. It's not their decision to get a support system. If you are part of the ecosystem of the founder, you are fucking responsible for that. And I'm passionate because that's why I'm, I'm, I'm going very hard right now. But I think this is something that has to be called out. It's not the founder's responsibility to create a system for themselves. Didn't we, when uh, the mind shift dinner, that, that came up at some point, didn't it? The like, you know, is it, when is, and I think it's some of the stuff that we've just read over the last two, two weeks, two, three weeks, you know, when is it going to be part of the, the VC climate mm-hmm. where if you're going to invest in someone, you want it to be for the long haul. This isn't a short term investment. Mm-hmm. You want it to be like you said, the ROI, you mm-hmm. want it to be, you know, 10 years down the road, you know, and everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. And why would you? flog your horse to death mm-hmm. if you want your horse to finish the race, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And if you want your horse to just keep on competing and comp- keep on racing, you know, and whatever the horse metaphor is right there, but why would you flog your own talent mm-hmm. to the point of exhaustion? And yeah, that's a, I think that's a really valid, that's a really valid convo. Like maybe gone is the old days when, mm-hmm. you know, investing in someone who's going to be that the ocean is the openness. Uh, I can't remember all the things, right? I can read those. Yeah. The big five, let me <laughs> the see. big five personality types from Cattell, or Cattell, excuse me. Um, and neuroticism is one of them. And the other three seem, or four seem very positive. Mm. So openness, con- 
conscientiousness. Conscientiousness. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Extroversion, agree, agreeableness, and then the neuro. Neuroticism. Why does it have to be so difficult? You couldn't come so, up with the easier so the to first, pronounce. <laughs> the first four, uh, you want to get high scores on them because they're all very positive traits. If you think about it, openness, conscientiousness, you're like, you're aware of the people around you. You're sympathetic, whatever, uh, you know, extroversion. Everybody likes an extrovert kind of thing, right? Mm. Or they seem attractive mm. anyway, okay? maybe more immediately attractive than an introvert. And then agreeableness, you're just generally a pleasant person. And then neuroticism comes in and you don't necessarily want to get a high score on neuroticism. And it's a strange word to use because it's so different than the other five words or the other four words. And it kind of it switches the balance. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they go, wait a minute. But I think it's interesting that Katal did it that way because that means that like maybe if you're too extroverted, maybe that's not a, not a good thing either. I mean, maybe everybody could, you know, maybe everything should be, you know, a, you know, a happy medium, you know, kind of a find, find the balance kind of mm -hmm. thing. And even openness, if you're too open, I mean, whoa, you know, just, you know, slow down, you know, this, you know, get out of my face kind of mm -hmm. thing. So, you know, finding a nice fine balance there. And then neuroticism, when you have, you know, a founder who has, who scores high on the first four of them, which seems to be very attractive in Western society, maybe not in all societies and cultures, like in Eastern cultures, being open, uh, conscious, agreeable, like all these kind of things aren't necessarily highly revered traits. You're supposed to be maybe a little bit more humble, a little bit more reserved. But if you have your founder and if it's sexy and it's interesting and it's fascinating and it seems like, you know, they're, they're good salesmen or good saleswomen, the people that have these first four big traits, you know, they score high on them. The fifth one, if you add in a high score on the neuroticism as well, which happens a little bit too often, you're going to have somebody that cannot, it's like one of those yappy dogs. You know, they're super friendly, but they just cannot stop barking, you know, kind of thing. And that's the neuroticism that creeps in where, um, you know, you start getting the, you know, the big, you know, can't sleep and you're, you know, shaking all the time and you're, you know, wondering what's going to happen next and you're running around like that's not attractive. And when I think a founder is not given the proper environment to not go neurotic, then that's where I think the, this world is seeing so much damage done to, to people. You, you need to be in a world where you don't have to express your neurotic traits to a point where it's damaging your body, to be frank. And, and, and of course, then your mind. I think when I look at these five, none of them as a high score is a good thing, I think, for the founder either. Uh, as you say, openness, it can be too much information. And, and founders usually hold all the information that actually can be damaging for the team to know. You need to protect your team from knowing the details one month down the road so that they actually manage it to focus on this particular sprint to deliver their job. It's not their job to, to worry about further down the line. It's yours. You know, same with, um, extroversion. It's good to, to be this person who is outgoing and so on, but you also need to be down to the ground at some point, uh, especially with the tougher conversations and so on. Same with the uh, agreeableness. You, you won't be liked. To be a good entrepreneur, you will not be liked. Right. You're going to be a time. yes person. I mean, uh, the high score, high score and agreeable, you're just like, wow, that's great. You're right. You know, yeah. yes person. And I mean, that's not, that, that doesn't build trust. It's toxic as well. Yeah. 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 So that's the, that's the inter interesting thing about where is the balance there? And talking about balance, quite a lot of experienced entrepreneurs, investors that I talk to, they talk about that the should be, the goal should be this level, like even level with emotions, uh, for example. Uh, with how you feel that you even out this curve of highs and lows for yourself to actually sustain the performance. I think there was another earthquake right now, but maybe not. 
<laughs> yeah, welcome to Iceland. Uh, we, we just ha- we're, we're having a volcano that is just about to erupt, so we have a lot of shaky situations here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like eight thousand volcano or like you know tremors. Yeah, in the past week or something. Yeah, so, yeah. it's crazy. Last night it was like five point two. Yeah, that was the. Uh, it was a proper shaker. It was a proper shaker, definitely. <laughs> so, side note. <laughs> uh, not the first episode I record this way. Um, two years ago, it was already. So they talk about this evening out, the uh, the highs and lows of the entrepreneurial journey uh, so that the peaks don't take you out of your balance as much. Mm-hmm. Because yes, it's awesome to have this new client uh, and, and get to that roller coaster high up. But then suddenly a key team member leaves you and if you allow yourself to go that high up, you usually allow yourself to go that low down as well to be affected emotionally and mentally by that key team player leaving the team. So a lot of entrepreneurs are talking about creating this levelness for themselves. And it's not a bad thing. It's not about that they take away the joy from their create journey of creating a company or so. It's more about knowing that this shall, this too shall pass for yeah. good and for bad. Yeah. Exactly. And and just landing in that experience of like knowing that nothing is permanent and that has to go with the positive experiences as well. And if we roll back a bit in the conversation, it's really about knowing the trade-offs. Everything in life has trade-offs. Yeah. And uh, if we talk about education, for me, it would not be about scaring off the kids to go into entrepreneurial journey. It's more about raising awareness like, hey, guys. This is part of the journey. It's part of a package, normalizing it, that it will be tough. You will feel lonely. You will sacrifice your health at some points. You'll sacrifice your relationships and so on and so forth. And it's okay. If you want to go that way, it's part of a package. You just need to see it, it. right? Yeah. 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 And not feel like you are the worst. You're failing because you're the only one who has to sacrifice everything. No, everyone does. But that's the thing. If you make it intentional and it's an aware uh, proactive choice of mm-hmm. what kind of trade-offs are you okay with dealing and for how long, it becomes a totally different journey from just going through the motions and, and feeling like a failure, even though you're succeeding because you're actually building something beautiful. Yeah, it's a really good point. And maybe like, okay, it's just, you know, once again, let's do one more metaphor. <laughs> like, <a> sports <laughs> metaphor, like outdoorsy, you know, okay, we're, we're climbing Everest now. Okay. And, uh, we're, you know, there's a, Along the way, in the different base camps, you know, it's not always people turn back kind of thing. Um, but you know, if you're, if your goal is really to get up there, you get up there and you're like, woohoo, I made it to the very top. And like, is there really a point where the average entrepreneur says like, like, okay, I'm done. Like if you make it to the Olympics, you know, you get your gold in the Olympics. You're like, okay, I did that. You know, what's after a gold in the Olympics? You know, what, what's after Everest or maybe Kilimanjaro, not Kilimanjaro, but K2, let's do, you know, all the, mm-hmm. ma- all the massive peaks. Okay. And I've done Antarctica and, you know, the South and North Pole, this kind of thing. Right. So I've done all the stuff. What's next? And I, I don't know. I think for, uh, first I was going for the peak metaphor because I don't know that the average, you know, entrepreneurial spirit ever stops and says, okay, now I'm done. Like, okay, maybe they, maybe it's, it's this project oriented stuff. I think we discussed this also mm-hmm. with some other people, but like, you know, you do something in a, you know, in, in technically in a sprint, although the sprint might be two years, three years, maybe one year. I've talked to a few at university who were like, oh yeah, I started a business and, you know, sold it. You know, I've done five of them in, in four years mm. or maybe it's the other way around. But anyway, yeah. starting something up, getting it rolling, getting it funded, selling it, moving on to the next venture. Mm. So it's like these little program, this is process oriented. Mm. So you have a, an end goal, but you know, maybe like you're, 
Everest climber, maybe you don't stop at Everest. Maybe you just keep on reaching for every other, you know, just keep on reaching for peaks. And, and, um, I don't know. Maybe that was a silly metaphor, but my point being like, it doesn't seem like the, that founder spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit is something that, and I think Craig was mentioning this too, one of our interviewees. And I know my, um, uh, my daughter's partner, he's, uh, founded a few companies already and he's like 26 and they've been successful and he sold them on. And, uh, he just is that way. He, he talked about it too. He's like, this is just who I am. I'm never going to be a guy that sits behind a desk. I'm never going to be, I might sit behind a desk while I'm working on a project. And that's exactly all I'm doing while I'm trying to get this baby going, but he's never going to be that guy that's going to be content to just, you know. And I think this is what I, what is part of my insight from the past couple of weeks that I probably have been trying in the past to protect the founders on the mental side, but that equals with taking their power away from them. They are entrepreneurs because they're so damn good at that, mm-hmm. at focusing on something and being fine with the trade-offs and being fine with those trade-offs, be their relationships, their health and so on. And when I'm trying to balance that out, I'm just trying to make them someone who they're not. Yeah. And we need them as they are. So for me, the transformation of my thought or the mind shift (laughs) that I'm going through is how can I help them be who they are instead of trying to mold them into something they're not by, and and by therefore, thereby taking their power away from them. Yeah. And I think this is a very important part of that, understanding that to climb Mount Everest, you need to be a, a bit of a crazy person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a exactly. lot of a crazy person. <laughs> and by trying to the, the person, or trying to make the person less crazy, you are setting them up for bigger failure when they attempt the top. Or even just depression. I mean, imagine if you're going to do Everest, you're going to be training, you're going to be away from your wife and kids, or, you know, the, or your, your husband and your kids, your family, whatever. You're going to be away from you know, your normal everyday living situation, whatever that is to go and do that experience. And there's an Icelandic woman who actually went to uh, South Pole by mm-hmm. herself uh, a couple of years ago. I can't remember her name, but I mean, how inspiring, just amazing. And she left her family and did that because it was her passion and they supported her on that trek. And of course it was dangerous. She could have not made it back at all, easily. Okay. Mm-hmm. Although she was very prepared and she did make it back and, and uh, just a really amazing story. But you know, there's, if, you know, okay, let's say her family was like, no, you shouldn't do this. You know, for whatever reason, they weren't supportive. Mm -hmm. I don't know that she had many children. I don't know what the whole story is. Like I said, I'm just kind of remembering it right now. But, you know, what if she was in a scenario, which is happens to many people, you know, where they're like, no, you can't follow you. There's dream crushers in your life Mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those dream crushers think they're doing the best thing for you by saying, that's not a good idea. But sometimes the dream crusher is gonna is actually gonna kill your soul, and you're not, you you'll constantly be you know having that that what if what if I had done this what if I had done that and then the resentment builds and the frustration and then you get bitter and you know you get a different kind of aches and pains and bodily challenges because your psyche is unfulfilled and so you know no one wants to be a dream crusher no one wants to be around dream crushers I don't I think dream crushers are the ones who are telling you to play safe or else like don't climb up onto that stool when you're a little three-year-old because you will fall down. Mm-hmm. And how many times have I heard parents say that to their kids? Mm-hmm. And they, they're literally standing right next to the kid. And there's a one in a thousand chance, or maybe one in a hundred, or maybe even one in a 50 chance, the whole thing is going to topple over. But it's a little toddler and they're trying something, you know? 
you will fall down. That's dream crushing right there. And I think trying to, you know, keep people from experiencing their own life path and facing their own, yeah, their own say traumas, but what do you call it? Their own bumps and pains along the way kind of thing, make their own mistakes is it's, it will lead to an unhealthier person in the long run than letting them just go through and bump against things and, uh, and then be there to go, okay, you know, not, I told you so, but yeah, that was an adventure injury. That's what happens when we do that. Now we know that. And also normalizing it. I'm just thinking about my own experience with my daughter. Sometimes I was that parent or the overbearing parent of saying like, Maya, careful, don't do that. But more often than not, I'm trying to just warn her and be there when she falls down. Yeah. So I let her experiment and I'm there to normalize it. It hurts right now. You're crying because you got scared or I crying because it hurts. Tell me. So I'm, I'm just trying to give her the, the expressions and, and be there for her. And I think I mentioned it on a podcast before, but a couple of times we had those conversations with my mom, for example, when Maya was smaller and she was learning to, to walk and she falls. And my mom from the phone starts like trying to calm her down so that she doesn't cry. Like, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. And I was like, it hurts. Right. Or maybe if it doesn't hurt, but she gets scared. And yeah. It's okay to cry then. So just giving her space to do that and normalizing that it's part of a process. Again, talking about, about the trade-offs, she wouldn't have learned to walk. If she wouldn't, if we wouldn't have normalized that it's okay to fall down because you're learning. And I think this is the same thing that we are trying or we're coming to right now in our process with entrepreneurship. Like they're learning to build businesses. It takes a toll. There are trade-offs. How can we normalize those trade-offs? Give the words and frameworks Mm -hmm. for that. And what is the relevant situation or context where we can do that? So that it's on the back of their mind. What Hoker was talking about, which I really appreciate it. He, he's gone through burnouts himself from light to proper ones when he actually sold his business to just take a proper long break from that. And he's talking about that. He always tries to mention about his mental health journey, uh, when he taught, when he has some public speaking opportunities, but it's never the focus. Right. He kind of slips it in there. Yes. He? Yeah. It's yeah. just slipping in and continuing with the rest. Yeah. And he says, inevitably, someone comes afterwards and saying, thank you for mentioning that. It's, it was so important for me to hear it right now. Normalizing it that way. Yeah. Because, and w- that's what he kind of gave me as a piece of advice, because I was asking him, like, how can I help? How can I, like, do I, should I focus on those early stage entrepreneurs? And his advice, not like he was pushing it on me, but it was like answer to my question or thoughts uh, exchange. If you just make it about the mental health, like a workshop or whatever, no, no one will come. Right. Yeah. But if you do it something about that, it's more kind of tangible and on the spot for these entrepreneurs right now. And there you kind of sm- do this small hook of, and by the way, this is part of the journey. Then it, it's working. There is a seed of normalization that this part of the journey. And actually it gives you permission for people to start talking about it when it becomes an actual thing for them. Right. So once again, like the, you know, the street hypnosis, you know, slipping it in through the, you know, through through the side door, uh, into the consciousness so that it's like, Oh, I don't know how I know this, but I know it. And, you know, the more that that's done and the more that that's, you know, it's, it's, and it's not even sneaky. It's just, it's beautiful. It's just Mm -hmm. not having the whole focus beyond once again, one of the things that came up was instead of having the focus beyond like mental health, you know, it's, it's on, or even just like, well-being and you know do it with that like well-being because that's you know kind of seems like a you know 40 year old woman being like oh in, in a muumu or a kaftan or something like i'm gonna guide you on your hippie well-being trip with some sage or something you know but like mental health is also like sort of freudian kind of like comes out like you need to you know this 
you're broken. So there's something in between there, which is just about like, you know, just, you know, just feeling good and, you know, just, you know, being connected to your, to your own self and being aware of your own. I don't know what the, what, what the new term should, mm-hmm. for it should be. And, you know, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, insult anybody that's, you know, involved in well-being, uh, because it is actually what we're, what the goal is, mm-hmm. I think, but maybe also there's no state of permanent well-being because we're creatures on a life path that's bumpy and rocky. And I've told people many times that like, if you don't like what's going on and you don't want to take part in, let's say politics or your own life or your social issues or whatever your, you know, whatever your personal issues are, and you don't want to take part in any of this and it's making you angry and upset and frustrated, then go live in a cave and meditate by yourself. I mean, what's the other option? Life is messy. Life is a challenge. You know, we, if we were in this perpetual state of like bliss, then I mean, that's what the whole matrix movie was about. Like they had to make conflict in the matrix because otherwise the, you know, the pods, these, you know, humans that they were using as energy cells started to die. They weren't thriving any longer unless there was conflict. So we like, or the other metaphor is like a, you know, a scale, like I'm a Libra. So, you know, I know this metaphor, a scale is the only, you know, is, is, um, it's not serving its purpose. It's not doing anything. It's not actually anything unless it has things to weigh mm-hmm. and something to do. There has to be an up and down. There has to be a constant kind of give and take for a scale to have any purpose at all. And, you know, life, the only purpose of life is going through and, and, and mm-hmm. taking the road less traveled and, and bumping into things and, and, uh, uh, experiencing things. So I don't know if the well-being is like, as a, maybe, a, yes. I mean, you want to feel well, but maybe the goal is to just know thyself, you know, mm-hmm. and know when you feel unwell and allow yourself to feel unwell sometimes too. And be like, Ooh, Ooh like the cat that goes behind the sofa because they ran into the sliding glass door. So they're going to go hide <laughs> and, you know, behind the sofa and be like, Oh, meow. You know, I mean, we have to allow ourselves to be like, Oh, meow as well. And, mm-hmm. and not always be like, I am in a state of well-being because mm-hmm. that's false. Even, you know, that's maybe a little, you know, tantrum on my part or a little sort of sidetrack, but. I'd like to you know, feel that there was some other vocabulary for it or, or, or that maybe it doesn't even need a, a set of terminologies. It just is, you know. Usually we do need because word, words matter so much and we, we do think through words and we f- feel, especially if we talk about entrepreneurs, people who are data-driven and so on, they need something to kind of intellectualize around. Even if we're talking about emotional state. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So words do matter. And I think this will be part of our project for the rest of the, for the next sprints to find which words. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it will be like what words and where to plug them in. Yeah. I think this is what comes for me right now as the focus for the next couple of weeks, figuring out where can we talk about that and what will that conversation be so that it doesn't become too woo woo. Right. Um, that it is, but it plants the seed of normalization. Yeah. And it gives the frameworks for the future when it's needed, not if, when. When it's, it's needed. needed. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So that people yeah. can start open up when, when it comes up for them. And I think this is something that younger generation does a lot. They are self aware about the things that were not on our compass or our map. Absolutely. No question about it. This might be something we can borrow from their insights of how, how to talk about those things, uh, what kind of terms to use so that they start landing without feeling too spiritual for tech entrepreneurs, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Or something like this. 
But it, interestingly enough, we, we had those conversations with people who are tech entrepreneurs and investors and whatnot. And, and surprisingly, the conversations were very spiritual. Yeah, that was actually, it was interesting. And yeah, um, that was very interesting. And I, maybe it's, you know, these are people who were young in the nineties. And I think in the nineties, you know, um, you know, I feel like we, got a lot done in the 90s to be frank i think we went up to you know we went to the multicultural world we really embraced things like the yoga and, and uh you know meditation and it was it was cool you know to kind of be multicultural it was cool mm -hmm. to embrace eastern philosophies it was like you were enlightened if you you know used ck1 which was the gender neutral you know uh body fragrance from calvin klein mm -hmm. You were cool if you wore gender neutral clothing. Mm -hmm. You were cool if you experienced and you went, you know, went to India, you know, and did your trek and, you know, went to a, an ashram and, you know, did a, what was it called? Vipassana. Vipassana, mm -hmm. you know, uh, silence. So I think that, you know, the, for example, the gentleman that were at the mind shifting dinner, um, yeah, went because that topic came up pretty heavily mm -hmm. at that dinner, which is great. And there obviously were youth in the nineties. Mm -hmm. So I feel like they're kind of a product of, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Uh, which is beautiful because that means it's the people that are like, you know, in their forties and fifties now that, uh, went through that whole cultural awakening. It was mm -hmm. the nineties and the rebellion against, okay. So post hippies, if you want, if you mm -hmm. want to say that, because you have the seventies, you know, kind of yeah. hippies and you have the conservative eighties and the wild nineties. And mm -hmm. then now these people are in control. And, you know, there's, for example, just to be, I don't know if this is where we want to go with this, but just, you know, very, you know, very succinctly you know, without condoning anything here or there, but I, it was a science fiction. It was like a fantasy movie to imagine yourself sitting on the porch of your house and legally smoking a joint in California or at many other places. And, you know, aside from Amsterdam or whatever. So those kids that were imagining that in the nineties, in the eighties and nineties, it was like this They're fantasy the fiction are now the regulators and are like, Hey, this is actually, you know, CBD is is helpful. It's actually, it should be available. Um, people suffering from, you know, all sorts of situations benefit from, you know, THC and not just the smoking, but the THC itself. And, and, um, so yeah. So, I mean, the dreamers, the people, we couldn't even imagine it in the nineties and the eighties, especially, uh, so, and it was a self-rebellion. It never even had to be any kind of like, we want marijuana, you know, like it just happened because it was a natural progression of generations. So once again, I think the embedding the, you know, that's what we keep coming back to is young people, what's their lexicon? Because they will be future leaders and they'll make, hopefully implement strategies that we want to see happening now, but you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I feel like we're transitioning from in the beginning with this project, I was thinking of taking the current entrepreneurs and figuring out how to help them right now. We're like, maybe they're not, we're not in the right spot there, but where can we then help? We don't want to go into the rehab or something like this right. because that's really expertise, like narrow expertise that has to be at a good level to provide help at that stage when yeah. people have hit the wall, for example, they need to go back to some normal state of being, whatever that normal is for that person. So we're rolling back or like, you know, early in time on the time scale and like, okay, when people are considering the entrepreneurship as path for themselves, can we plant some seeds there so that when they come into their journey, they actually don't get, they don't hurt themselves as much. Yeah. There will be hurt. There will be suffering. There'll be problems. Part of a journey. Yes, everything has trade-offs, but be aware of those, of what those trade-offs are 
and have the tools to deal with them. Choose them mindfully and intentionally and design around that. So I think this is what we are, what, where we are uh, at right now. I think that's very succinctly said. Uh, you know, definitely that's, yeah. We'll see what, <laughs> what the next episode will be about. Maybe yeah. we'll be completely in a different sphere. <laughs> so we do have a few uh, interviews this week. And then, and I still would like to speak with, I've already gotten a, you know, a thumbs up from my, um, my kind of son-in-law, mm-hmm. who's an entrepreneur and some of his crew who were well-known figures in Iceland who are kind of under 30 and, you know, business people, uh, and artists. And I am, would love to, I'm looking forward to sitting down with them and with you as well. Um, and having the convo about what is their, What's their, what's their frame of mind? What's their reference? You know, as kind of a uh, very classic Gen Z types, you know, born after like 19, well, well, right around the millennial Gen Z kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. What is their, how are they approaching the entrepreneurial spirit? Do they see things differently than what we've seen from some of your interviewees from your podcast before mm-hmm. I got involved in this? And then the people we've spoken to who are in their, you know, forties, fifties, sixties kind of thing. I'm very curious to see what they have to say about it. So maybe we, if we can fold them in in the next two weeks too, to kind of try to find that vocab, you know, for, mm-hmm. for, for getting it more in the streets, then, um, that would be great. If not, we'll wait until the sprint after that. But, um, yeah, I think this is an exciting journey. I'm very curious about that conversation as well. And then bringing it together tomorrow. We're talking to Sire, for example who has been interviewing people here, or especially both men and women. She wrote two separate books for women who go through the burnout and how to find their way back to themselves. And the same for men, which was response to people's reaction on the first book. Like, how about men? Do they not, do they not hit, hit the wall? What do they do? So she interviewed uh, men of different uh, walks of life about their burnout experiences and... Yeah. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having the conversation with her because she's also teaching at BPROS that we mentioned as a school. So understanding what what is going on on the education side and also what has been the response to her book and all the work that she's been doing since the release of the book will be very valuable for us. And maybe that helps us further define the direction and the, the scope of the delivery from the, for the project. So this these coming weeks will be very intense, insightful. And hopefully interesting as well. Yeah. Thanks, Maya, again for, for the conversations and for the project in general. Yeah. And um, thank you, too. I'm looking forward to the next yes. conversation. Amazing. And to you, Genius Leaders, as always, thank you so much for being part of this community. And uh, if you need this reminder today, I just want to say that I feel you, I see you, I love you just the way you are. So Let's normalize the struggles you're going through and find the ways to work with them in an intentional way. Talk to you next week. Have a good time. Until then. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Genius Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button. Please rate, review, and share to help more people discover the show and become the better leaders. For more conversations about living in your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honors conversation about leading yourself and others. And it is my honor to be a guide in overcoming everything.